0: Dear God, in this season that begins where we celebrate the coming of the Messiah the first time and our hearts are set ablaze with the hope of His return the second time, we do come to that last piece, the last teaching. May it be clear, may Holy Scripture speak in unequivocal tones and terms to us and what we hear, let us follow. As we follow our Lord Jesus Christ, in His name we pray. Amen. When I was in school, in fact, when you were in school, the favorite time of the day, of the week, besides recess, was when the teacher put her, put her pencil down and she said, boys and girls, we're having show and tell today. Three minutes of fame. As you stand in front of your little friends and you show... What you found, what you made, who you know, whatever it was, show and tell. Well, the teacher says we can have a little show and tell today. I want to share two items with you, both headlines. Three weeks ago, this headline came. Cyberspace, one of the most respected news organizations in the United States, the Christian Science Monitor, three weeks ago. The headline naturally would catch my eye. Here's the headline. For real education reform, take a cue from the Adventists. Whoa, you got my attention now. Here we go. Amid all the buzz on education reform, the Seventh-day Adventist school system might seem an unexpected place to look for models in improving student achievement, but by educating mind, body, and spirit, Adventist schools outperform the national average across all demographics. Since 2006, as part of the Cognitive Genesis study, two colleagues and I, this is written by Elisa Kido, two colleagues and I have been gathering data on more than 50,000 students enrolled in Seventh-day Adventist schools. Unbeknownst to many, the Adventist church runs a Christian school system second only in size to the Roman Catholic parochial schools. Even we were surprised by the results. Our four-year independently financed study showed that students at Adventist schools outperformed their peers at the national average in every subject area. Our research shows the demographics of Adventist schools are closer to those of public schools. Now, this is the shocker. Uh, closer to public schools with high economic and socioeconomic diversity. Because people say, oh yeah, you're private school. You only get, you get the creme de la creme and that's why you have the high scores. No, we're just like public schools. They look at our diversity. Okay. Enrollment is open, meaning students are admitted without the kind of screening for ability that many other private schools employ. In North America, the Adventist Church runs almost a thousand schools, we're one of them, many of which are small and rural. We found no relationship between the size of the school that students attended and achievement. Isn't that great? Some of you came from a very small school, and you are doing very well here, and we are very proud of you. Good on you. So, how do we account for the Avenus advantage? We believe it lies in the holistic approach these schools take a commitment to educating mind, body, and spirit. Whoa, Andrews University, our Latin motto mens corpus spiritus. We believe in that, don't we? Unlike public schools, Adventist schools across the country have a standard curriculum. It includes the traditional three R's, along with emphasis on spiritual and physical development. There's a coherence and a connectedness between Adventist schools that doesn't often exist in other systems. Final sentence. Here it comes. True reform of the public school system will take hard work and innovation, but the Adventists provide a model that can help reformers hit the reset button. Show and tell. Headline number one. Here comes headline number two. Hold it up here for you to see the the respected National Geographic magazine. There we go. You can see the cover story. See it? The Secrets of Living Longer. Cover story. So I'm curious now. I open up my National Geographic. What if I said you could add up to ten years to your life? A long, healthy life is no accident. It begins with good genes, but it also depends on good habits. If you adopt the right lifestyle, experts say chances are you may live up to a decade longer. So with this study, fo- uh, funded in part by the U.S. National Institute on Aging, scientists focused on several regions. Sardina, Italy, sent the crew there. Okinawa, Japan, I've been there, sent a crew there. Loma Linda, California. Researchers studied a group of Seventh-day Adventists who rank among America's longevity all-stars. They live the longest. So I turn to this little uh, section called Adventists in the National Geographic. Let me just read a line here. The Adventist church born during the era of 19th century health reforms that popularized organized vegetarianism, the graham cracker and breakfast cereals. John Harvey Kellogg was an Adventist when he started making wheat flakes. We call them corn flakes today. Has, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has always preached and practiced a message of health. It expressly forbids smoking, alcohol consumption, and eating biblically unclean foods, such as pork. It also discourages the consumption of other meat, rich foods, caffeinated drinks, and stimulating condiments and spices. Quoting now someone, grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables constitute the diet chosen for us by our Creator, wrote Ellen White, an early figure that helped shape the Adventist Church. Adventists also observe the Sabbath on Saturday, socializing with other church members and enjoying a sanctuary in time that helps relieve stress. Today, most Adventists follow the prescribed lifestyle, a testimony perhaps to the power of mixing health and religion. You want to know what these two headlines have in common? They have in common the same five foot, two inch little woman whose writings have shaped the community of faith that I'm privileged to belong to. Ever read her book, Education? I have. Amazing. Ever read her book, Ministry of Healing? I have. Amazing. Ten-year advantage? Please. Amazing. But what's up with that? I mean, the word on the street is practically everything she got, she borrowed from somebody else. Well, if, if, if that were true, you think about this. Just, let's just be logical. If she borrowed it all, how come nobody else has come up with the same positive results? Why are they making headlines? How come the people who follow the principles she wrote and championed live up to 10 years longer than those who don't? That's the question that intrigued Australian ENT, ear, ear, nose and throat specialist, Don McMahon, and a Loma Linda University biologist, paleontologist, researcher, Leonard Brand. They collaborated to find the answer. I'm reading at the very last page of their book. Delightful little book. I'll put the words on the screen for you. The critics' claims that Ellen White's writings can be explained as originating from strictly human sources do not stand up to critical evaluation. Dr. Don McMahon's research reveals a dramatic difference in quality between Mrs. White's health principles and those advocated by other health reformers in the 1800s. So they, I photocopied this from their book. So they... They put some of the other health reforms. These are the people that she she could have borrowed from. She could have borrowed these ideas. Let's see, let's see. Um, here's Sylvester Graham. Graham crackers, all right? Graham crackers. This is the guy. This is this is don't these these are his health principles. Don't heat your house. Go naked. Don't don't parents don't rock a baby to sleep. Don't drink water. Get your liquids only from fruit. Somebody's borrowing. Fortunately, left all that out. Here's another health reformer, contemporary to Ellen White, William A. Alcott. Wear very little clothing, even when it's cold. These guys must have lived in California. That's what I'm thinking. Where'd he come up with this stuff? Don't use eyeglasses. Don't comfort children. Crying is good for them. Avoid sweating in hot weather. They didn't live in California. Okay, here's another one. Larkin B. Coles, another contemporary. Avoid excessive spitting. Well, that's good counsel. (laughs) Don't rock a child in a cradle. Don't nurse babies at night. When are you supposed to nurse them? Just wait till day. Drink a little water. Here's another guy, James C. Jackson. Don't wear black. (laughs) What are you laughing at me for? Marital sexual activity is dangerous to your health. (laughs) Rubbing the body with the hands will substitute for a bath. Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, so McMahon, the uh, specialist and the researcher, Brand, they they, they examine what's happening to her contemporaries. She's leaving all this behind. What she comes up with gives you a 10-year advantage today. Something's going on here, these men conclude. I'll put it on the screen for you. Take a careful note of this. This difference between the health reformers indicates that Mrs. White had health information that could not have come from any human source available anywhere at the time she lived and wrote. It just didn't exist. The stuff was not around for a 10-year advantage back then. Where did she get it from? Ah, Keep reading. At least in the area of health, our research has provided evidence that demands an extra biblical, that means outside the Bible, extra human, outside of human, source of information to account for the accuracy of her health principles. End quote, amazing, amazing reminds me. Of these words to God, to the children of Israel, the chosen people, on their way to the promised land, liberated from Egypt. This is Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. God speaking to Israel, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, those health, embedded health principles in the Mosaic writings, Keep all the statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. End quote. Amazing. Up to a ten-year advantage? Wow. Maybe the Creator of our bodies really does know what's best. And maybe, just maybe, that little five-foot, two-inch woman really was divinely inspired to lead her readers back to the timeless principles of this book right here. Which is why, by the way, we might understand now the ending that the Christmas story has to it. A lot of people don't know this. Well, they just say John just forgot. the. I mean, they read the Gospel of John. There's no Christmas story in the Gospel of John. He forgot it. No, he didn't forget it. He was saving it. He embedded it into his apocalypse, the dramatic apocalypse. And I want to go there today. The dramatic Christmas story, the cryptic Christmas story. The moment you read these words, you say, oh yeah, that's Christmas, all right. Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book, written by John, the book of Revelation. Revelation, chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible, oh, you've got to see this. This will be page 829 in the Pew Bible. Revelation, chapter 12. Look at this. The cryptic Christmas story, yeah, you'll see it. You'll say, well, that is Christmas right there. I'm in the New King James Version today. Any translation you have, it's fine with me. All right. uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now, John's in vision. All right, that's what happens to prophets. They get visions. God shows them what others cannot see. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland. Now, the Greek word for garland there is stephanos. From whence comes our word Stephanie or stephen. All right? It's a garland. It's a wreath. You cross the finish line in the, in the ancient Olympus races, you get this wreath. It's the conqueror. It's the winner. On her head a garland of twelve stars. Oh, let's put, let's put, a, let's put an artist's portrayal of that. Okay, there she is. There's the woman. Now, in Revelation... A pure woman, such as this one, represents God's true community of faith. If there is an impure woman, and she appears in chapter 17, she's called the prostitute, the whore, or the harlot. That represents the fallen system of faith, counterfeit truth. All right. So that the two are juxtaposed in the apocalypse. The pure woman. This is the pure woman here. Keep reading, verse two. Then being with child. Oh, that woman that we just saw was pregnant. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And then, watch this. John says, well, I'm watching. Verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Let's see the dragon now on that screen. Whoa. Found him on Google. (laughs) I typed in dragon, Revelation 12, and that's what I got. Isn't that something? Hey, by the way, who's the dragon in this prophecy? Who's the dragon? Verse 9 is clear. The dragon. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. We know who the dragon is. The dragon is Satan. Okay, so now let's go. Here, Satan appears in verse 3. Here goes verse 4 now. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Those are clearly members of the family of God. Angels who joined with him. This is the origin of demons, by the way. There are demons. That's not a figment of imagination. They're fallen angels. A third of them were drawn to this rebellion by Lucifer, the fallen one. And the dragon, now here it goes. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now we're getting to the Christmas story. What happened in that Christmas story? Who was poised, ready as soon as the Christ child is born? And who was the front man for the dragon? Who was the front man? King Herod ready to devour that baby as soon as it's born. Ah, this is the cryptic Christmas story, and it's in Fast Forward. Watch this. Verse 5, So she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a Messianic sign, symbol rather, straight out of Psalm 2. She bore the Messiah, and her child was caught up to heaven and gone. That's the whole story. His whole life in half a sentence. Because that's the point of it. The point is the dragon in this story. The dragon and the woman. The woman. What happens to the woman? Verse 6, Then the woman, after he was ascended to heaven, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. That's 1,260 years. The dark and middle ages now. Whoa. She goes underground. The community of faith goes underground preserving divine truth for a ruthless power seeks to exterminate that truth and that community. Long, dark, and middle ages. Well, just read, just drop down to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, and by the way, that happened at Calvary. This chapter is clear. At Calvary, when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, over. It's curtains for Satan. And he knows it. He was cast to the earth. Fully. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. I can't get at my antagonist. I cannot get at him. I will kill the woman that gave birth to him. Now, fast forward all the way to the end of the chapter. This is the final generation at the end of time that is faithful to God. See to the woman. Watch this. Verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. King James says, with the remnant. That which comes at the very end. He went to make war with that at the very end. Who are these people? Ah, These are they who keep the commandments of God. And notice this. Have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is. Did you catch that line? And the dragon was enraged. Enraged with the woman. That's what happened at Christmas. And by the way, that's what's happening today. Now you know. Now you know. Because take a look at this woman and her end-time children. Do you see what they have? The Greek word here is very clear. It can be translated, they possess. They don't have the commandments of God. God has those. They're radically loyal to God. They only have one solitary possession. And what is that possession? They possess the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what they possess. Final community. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? We've been there a few weeks ago. Just a little refresher. Revelation 19.10, we'll put it up here. Direct quote for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That means, we found out from Revelation 22, that means there is the presence of a divinely inspired prophet in the midst of the community. I'm not making this up. This is in the, the apocalypse. So here's the question we need to be asking. Really, here's the question. Why has the dragon, this evil Grinch that almost destroyed the first Christmas, why has the dragon from the very beginning of time been so enraged at the gift of prophecy, at the spirit of prophecy, at the testimony of Jesus? Why has he always slaughtered the prophets? John the Baptist. Why has he been going after the prophets? i tell you why. This isn't rocket science now. The answer is very simple. Because the gift of prophecy Through it, God shines a massive halogen light straight into the dark secret lair of the dragon and exposes his secrets and brings to light his deceptions. And so the dragon is enraged at the woman. I'll kill her. I'll snuff out that light. (laughs) You see? The bright halogen light clues us in on the MO, the modus operandi of the dragon. For example, how he uses diet, what we eat and what we drink, to control how we think. The light suddenly shines. You don't want to be under that control. Watch what you eat. Watch what you drink. Here's another for example. How he uses reading material. What you watch that goes through into your brain and onto the hard disk. How he uses that to open the door of your life straight to his attack. The light shines. Look out for what you read. What you watch. What you hear. Be very careful. He wants in. That's what the, that's what the halogen light of the spirit of prophecy does. It illumines the fallen culture of a doomed planet. Don't. Don't be marinated in that culture. It exposes philosophical confusion. It exposes false security. Hey, we got time, man. I got time. This world's not coming to an end. Bright halogen. The the hiss of the serpent, the dragon. All exposed. I tell you what, if I were the dragon, I I would be ticked to high heavens over that bright halogen light. Because, by the way, the bright light not only exposes the endgame of Lucifer, it also exposes the strategy and endgame of Almighty God Himself. So that when you and I think, curtains, there's no hope, we might as well give up our faith and surrender. The light shines and says, don't you let go. I'm coming soon. When you see these things begin to come to pass, sit up, sit up, sit up. I'm coming soon. Hang on. It gives us hope and a future. If I were the dragon, I would obliterate this gift Please. In fact, if I were the dragon, there are two diabolical strategies that I would resort to. May I put them on the screen for you? Two strategies if I were the dragon. Strategy number one, I would ravage the author. I would ravage the author and her writings so that no one will read her. If I were the dragon, I would raise up every critic I could find in an effort to destroy the credibility of that little five-foot, two-inch woman and her prophetic gift. I would seek to destroy her influence. I would seek to cast doubt on her integrity. I would accuse her of the basest of motives that I could possibly concoct. Because if she is read, if she is read... I am exposed, and I lose big time. Destroy it. Destroy it. Two strategic plans. The other is the very opposite. Let me put the second one up. I would overemphasize the author and her writings so that no one will read her. Either strategy, they don't read her. What's the strategy number two? I'd find well-meaning but fanatical people who use her writings to beat others over the head. I'd raise a generation of baby boomers, many of whom appear to have experienced that sort of legalistic, punitive use of her writings when they were young. And I would make those baby boomer parents so gun-shy over the spirit of prophecy that they would end up neglecting to teach their children the immensity and value of the divine gift so that I would have an entire generation in the university right now, an entire generation that has not been exposed to her because of their parents' gun-shy timidity. That's what I would do. I wouldn't want them to know that now is the time. Forget what your mom and dad did. Don't do what your mom and dad did. Read it for yourself. I wouldn't want them to know that. Either extreme, I win. Because nobody reads her that way. Pretty bright dragon. Pretty smart dragon. Which is why I'm grateful for the very bright mind of the scholar who is the namesake of Andrews University. Now, come on, help me out here. We surely wouldn't have named our university after someone who was not intellectually bright and biblically literate. Now, would we have? No. Having established that point, then please listen to what J.N. Andrews says about this end-time community and the gift of prophecy. In the February... uh, 15, 1870 issue of the Review and Herald magazine. Andrews lays out 20 short points to express what Seventh-day Adventists believe about the Bible teaching of spiritual gifts and Ellen White's prophetic ministry in this church. I'm not going to share the 20 with you. I'm going to share just the last two, all right? Number 19. I'll put it on the screen for you. Number 19. Here it is. This is the namesake of this university writing. One of the chief gifts of the Spirit of God that he has placed in the New Testament church is the gift of prophecy. And there are a list of texts. All right? This gift, the Bible connects with the closing work of this age, this dispensation. There are the next texts. Spiritual gifts do not... Here's the key point for 19. Spiritual gifts, therefore, do not cease to be of importance in the sight of God at the end of time. No, no, no. The gifts go all the way to the end, nor of importance to His true people. And that message, which is to accomplish the perfecting, the shaping of the saints to fit them for translation for the return of Christ, that message has the Spirit of God connected with it. The Holy Spirit is in the thick of the gift of prophecy. If I dismiss that gift, I'm dismissing Him. Hey, don't need you. He's in the thick of it. Of course He is. Now here comes number 20. Ah, this is where I can tell we chose the right one. Bright mind. Notice the balance. Notice the careful balance here. Number 20 on the screen for you. Finally, in the reception of members into our churches. All right, so you're bringing people in. We desire on this subject to know two things. You want to come and join my community of faith? Two things. Number one, we desire to know that they believe the biblical doctrine, the Bible doctrine of spiritual gifts. Well, that's not rocket science. Every Christian today believes in the doctrine of spiritual gifts. It's right here. And the spiritual gifts go all the way to the end of time. Very clear from Holy Scripture. All right? So, number one, that's what we ask. And then number two, watch this. That they will candidly acquaint themselves with the visions, the writings of Ellen White, which have ever held so prominent a place in this work. We believe that every person standing thus. You do these two, Carrying out this purpose will be guided in the way of truth and righteousness. Now, the last sentence is the keeper. And these are my italics. And these who occupy this ground are never denied... All the time they desire to decide this matter. End quote. You can have all the time you wish. You don't have to come to the conclusion I come to. No. Take all the time you wish. Study the biblical teaching of spiritual gifts. Read from Ellen White's writings. Take your time. Be as thorough as you can possibly be. And then here's what you ask yourself Ask yourself When I read her writings, am I tasting the fruit of the testimony of Jesus? Is this the fruit? You know what? I'm just as confident as John Evans Andrews that if you'll do that, I just trust you and God to work it all out. You don't have to talk to me about it. You just do it. I trust the Holy Spirit to lead you. So, you're saying, Dwight, what do we do next? Ah! I say we embrace the great Kellogg's cornflakes marketing strategy of a few years ago. Let's put Kellogg's cornflakes. make us hungry just for a moment. Taste them again. Wasn't that... A, that was brilliant. Taste them again... For the first time. You say, oh, come on, Dwight, how can you do that? How can you do something again for the first time? But, of course, that's the whole point, isn't it? You can't, but, of course, you can. Which, of course, is the message. Come back to what you thought you gave up when you grew up. Come back to it. Now, look, when I grew up, I grew up in Japan. Let me tell you about the breakfast series in Japan. We had hot, soggy oatmeal. All right, God bless my mother. It gives good. We had hot soggy oatmeal or, because we have a college in Japan as well, the schools are all over the earth, they produce granola. So we had granola or hot soggy oatmeal. When we came home on furlough back to the United States and we stepped for the first time into an American supermarket and saw that there are miles of shelves of American breakfast cereal, we kids thought we had died and gone to heaven. I mean, you believe it? They even have something called frosted flakes to die for. Whoa. Of course, now that I'm grown up, I've developed a much more sophisticated palate. Can't eat frosted flakes now. Karen says so. Ah, but that's the whole point. Of the marketing strategy, come back to what you thought you gave up when you grew up. Come on, come on back. Taste them again for the first time. Go back to what nourished you when you were a child. Open up another box of cornflakes. Eat, eat, and enjoy. What if we all did that? What if we all decided, okay, I'm going to read a book or two of Ellen White's. For the first time. We'll call it for the first time. I'll pick up a book and it'll be just like I'm reading it for the first time. I'll pretend like I never read it before. With new eyes now, I experience what has always been there. What would happen if you and I began to read the writings of Ellen White? Guess what? We don't have to to wonder what will happen. Because two friends of mine have done the empirical research. Now, this is going to blow you out of the water. Have done the empirical research. Two very respected and rigorous researchers have done the research. Who are my friends? Roger Dudley, Des Cummings, Jr. They did this research. Get this. They surveyed more than 8,200 members of 193 Seventh-day Adventist churches across North America. Their research empirically has confirmed on a broad scale what many of us have experienced on a deeply personal level. And I can hardly wait to share this with you. they, They were measuring 20 different categories of spiritual life with one of the categories being this question, whether those surveyed were regular readers of the writings of Ellen White or not. The results are stunning and they're on the back of your study guide, which we're not filling in today. It's just a take home. So pull your study guide out right now. And deacons, will you please make sure that everybody here, because you're going to want this graph. Everybody here gets this. Just go ahead and stand right up now. Start moving down the aisle and uh, make sure you get this piece. This, this is the keeper. You don't have to fill it out. You want to have the piece. And then I'll go to the graph. And I want to, a little belatedly now, welcome all of you who are watching on television. Delighted to have you. I want you to please to have the same graph. So go to our website. Put it on the screen for you right now. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website, Pioneer Memorial Church, pmchurch.tv. This is the last in the series. Man, the semester's gone. The series has been the gift, the final piece. Ellen White, Taste Them Again for the First Time. When you see that teaching title, it says study guide beneath it. You click that, and you'll have the same graph. You'll have all the material I am sharing this morning, and you won't have to fill out a single line. That's a little holiday break for you. All right? So let's, let's take a look at this graph. Just hold your hand. If you're sitting in overflow, make sure you get this graph. All right, not going to wait any longer. Just be patient. They're coming your way. But I want, to put, I'm going to, I want to pull this graph out myself first. Okay, so here's the graph. Let me draw your attention to this. Okay, so there are two bars. The top bar, the lighter bar, are the readers of Ellen White. The dark bar, the non-readers. Okay, let's find out. They asked, everybody surveyed, over 8,200 people. They asked them, do you have a strong relationship with Jesus Christ? 85% of those who read Ellen White regularly say, yes, I do. 59% of those who do not read her said, yes, I do. Now, I want you to get the, get the differences. That's a 26% spread. Do you have a strong relationship with Jesus? Those who read or say, yeah, I do. Way more. Oh, let's look at the next one. What is this one? Do you have the assurance of being right with God? Do you have that security, that assurance right now? 82% of those who read on the white say, yes, I do. 59% of those who don't read on the white say, yes, I do. Look at that spread. Let's drop down. Here's another one. Feel well prepared. Do you see that? Feel well prepared for witnessing. 49% said yep. 24% said no. Look at that spread. Let's drop down another one. I thought this was significant. Daily personal Bible study. Do you see that one? 82% of those who read Ellen White say, I read the Bible every single day. Now, if it were a false prophet, we would expect the reaction to be, I don't need the Bible anymore. I found another prophet. Isn't that amazing? 82% of the people who read Ellen White say, you bet, I read the Bible every single day. How about those who don't read her? 47%. 35 percentage point spread. Something is happening here. Not rocket science. It's called research. One more I'll have you take a look at. It's next, third from the last. Have daily family worship. I want to speak to the parents who were up here just a moment ago. Notice this. Those who read Ellen White, daily family worship, 70% of them. Those who don't read Ellen White, only 42% of them. You want, a little, you want a little something to boost you as you raise your children? Read. Read. Taste them again for the first time. Read. Read. Wow. As you can note, In every one of the 20 spiritual life categories surveyed, the regular readers of Ellen White scored higher than the non readers. In their conclusion, I'll put uh, Dudley's and uh, Cummings' conclusion on the screen for you. Seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion in the Church Growth Survey, on every single item that deals with personal attitudes or practices of spiritual life. The member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the member who reads them only occasionally or never. End quote. Which means, ladies and gentlemen, if you will will taste them again... When you taste them again for the first time, your reading of the writings of Ellen White will open the door, I believe, to a deeper walk with Christ and a more meaningful life of service with Him. Taste them again for the first time. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. There are over 130 titles that bear her name. Where am I going to start? It's a fair question. I say let's start with the testimony of Jesus. Let's start with the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to recommend three classics and then sit down. Here they are. I have them right here in the pulpit with me. Three classics. Put it on the screen. Classic number one, Steps to Christ. I have it right here. Steps to Christ. This short Christian classic, I went onto Wikipedia and found out that this is translated somewhere between 135 and 140 languages. It's the most translated book she has. Steps to Christ. Right here. I shared this with you a few weeks ago. This little book, when I was in graduate school at Andrews University, this little book is what sparked my reconversion to Jesus. This, the reading of this little book. That's why I'm so big on the book. In fact, you know what? I want you to have this book. You may have it. When you leave today at the welcome stations, you don't have one of these, stop by and pick it up. We've got one for you. Take one. When you come back from the holidays, we're not going to have 40 days of prayer. We're going to have 31 days of prayer. We're going to wait till you're back so we will not start until January 8th. When you come back from the holidays, we're going to take this little book and it's going to be the text that we that we work our way through. Somebody on Facebook, and we'll give you the address when you get back, somebody on Facebook has divided this book into 31 daily readings. We'll give you that uh, when you come back. More on that later. Get the book. Taste them again for the first time. All right, classic number one is Steps to Christ. Classic number two, I'm really excited about this one for more, uh, for more uh, reasons than one. Classic number two, Desire of Ages. Hands down, outside of the Bible, this happens to be my most favorite book of all. But I've got a brand new edition right here in my hands. I need the camera to pull in on this as close as you can see it. This is a new edition. My friend Jerry Potzer now sleeps in Jesus. One of his projects before he died was to work with a publisher. He said, listen, you know what? The King James. Oh, I agree with him. The King James makes this really tough reading. Could you pull all the King James out? Put New King James in. Sometimes NIV. Sometimes New American Standard. Just put it in. A friend of Jerry's sent this book to me last February, and I started reading it, read it through. I tell you what, what a difference. Amazing. You're going to love it. This is the book, the classic on the life of Jesus. A second feature, by the way, and that's why I'm holding this up, because now I need you to come in on it. The second feature is the publishers decided to to hire the award-winning artist Daryl Tank to give a pencil sketch... Scenes from the life of Jesus at the beginning of every chapter. This is his pencil sketch for Calvary. And by the way, the most moving chapter I've ever read anywhere in literature on Calvary is the one titled Calvary in this book. It'll change you just by reading it, I promise. Anyway, this is a pencil sketch. They kind of doctored it up with some color for the cover. I, I prop this book up where I have worship every morning just so that I can look at that cover and remind myself, there's the victor. There's the winner in this cosmic battle that you and I are engaged in. Wow. But beyond all of that, I'm quite confident that you will never read a more inspiring and life-changing portrayal of the life of Jesus than this book. I've been blessed to read it a dozen times. Hey, listen. You can read, look, you can read this for your devotions. At the, at the bottom of every chapter, there's the, there are the Gospel references where the chapter is based on. You can read a chapter a day. You can read a chapter a week. Who cares? Taste them again for the first time. It's the testimony of Jesus. Take a look at your Savior. Ah, you'll never be the same again. Taste them again for the first time. All right, two classics Steps to Christ, Desire of Ages. Here's the third. Hands down, great controversy. Hands down, this is the most dramatically influential book Ellen White ever wrote. This book, trust me, has been read in high places. I have three scholar friends who became Christian of this community of faith after reading this book, Great Controversy. You know what this book does? It concentrates on the books of Daniel and Revelation. And like no other book that you will ever read, unveils the endgame of both Christ and Satan in the final chapter of earth's history. It's all exposed. Bright halogen light right here. I'm warning you. You will never be the same again if you read this book. promise you. Listen to this. Ellen White describing this book. This is what she says about the book. Put it on the screen. The great controversy should be very widely circulated. It contains the story of the past, the present, and the future, in its outline of the closing scenes of this earth's history, it bears a powerful testimony in behalf of the truth. I am more anxious to see a wide circulation for this book than for any others I have written. For in the great controversy, the last message of warning to the world is given more distinctly than in any of my other books." End quote. Now, I'm going to say something to some of you. If you're a pastor, and I know I've got a bunch of colleagues who listen on the radio and watch on television, if you're a pastor or a spiritual leader... I want you to read this book. I've given my copy of this particular one because this is the other one. Jerry only worked on two that has the New King James Version in it. I gave my copy to a a South Bend Pentecostal pastor friend of mine. He's reading my copy. I want you to get this book. Open it up. Just lay everything aside. Say, okay, okay, okay. I'll check it out. Listen, George Barna. George Barna, the, the celebrated Christian demographer. Everybody knows George Barna. George Barna surveyed American clergy. Asked them, what are the most influential writers you are reading? And get this, for pastors under the age of 40, okay, 40 and younger, they mentioned, in fact, Barna uses the word, they championed the author Ellen White. Three authors, she was one of those three. Pastors 40 and under are reading this book. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen. She is no longer the best kept secret in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Every denomination, the survey, 40 and under, we read an author named Ellen White. What's up with that? Readable, compelling. This would be a prophetic page-turner for you. Get the book. Three classics. Steps to Christ, Desire of Ages, the Great Controversy. By the way, I need to tell you this. These three are part of a five-volume series. It's called the Conflict of the Ages series. It takes the entire story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation and in a sweeping panorama of sacred history, the five books describe God's activity on this planet. You can get the other two here and one here. I want you to ponder for a moment the words of a theologian who, who, who... researched these five books called The Conflict of the Ages. I'll put his words on the screen. His name is Joseph Battistone. These are his words. The Conflict of the Ages series is in many respects a theological masterpiece. I believe the five are Ellen White's magnum opus, the greatest writing that she's done, those five. He goes on, in a unique way, Ellen White unfolds the drama of the most significant controversy in human history. She identifies the main issues in the conflict and demonstrates their relevance for each individual. In a simple way, she provides answers to some of the most vexing questions relating to the human dilemma, those having to do with the problem of evil. One of the major achievements of this work, if not the most important, is the exoneration of God's character, end quote. The five books begin with the word. The first book begins with the three words, God is love. The great controversy ends with the three words, God is love. And between those bookends, the revelation of God's divine passion and love for the human race and the lengths heaven has gone to. You want to read five books? There you go. By the way, I neglected to mention to those of you who are watching on television right now, this little classic, Steps to Christ. I'll send it to you free of charge. Or come in the mail. There's a toll-free number coming up in just a moment. Call that toll-free number. The book is yours. If you're here in this building right now, stop by a welcome center and ask for your own copy of Steps to Christ. And I want to make one more offer. Those of you who are watching, this book right here, I'll send the book to you. You call the 800 number. I'm not going to give it in the church here because everybody will call it, so they don't know the number. It's just between you and me. You, you call the number. This is a little more expensive book, but I want you to have the book. By the way, since you brought it up, Amazon.com. Where do I find these books? This book, Amazon.com, $2.99, brand new. $2.99. All three of these classics, Amazon.com. And by the way, high-techie, third millennials, you can get them for your e-readers. Your iPad, your Kindle, your Nook, Everything's there, ready and waiting for you. Just go to Amazon.com. Ninety nine cents, Amazon.com for the electronic edition of this one. So go to Amazon.com. If you'd like, a, if you look at, if you'd like, if you'd like everything this woman ever wrote for nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents. Whiteestate.org. You can buy a CD-ROM. I have that. You put it on your laptop. You got them all. Hey, listen, guys. This isn't about. This isn't about selling books. Here's the deal. This is about a generation at the end of time. This is about a generation that the dragon is marked to destroy and eliminate. And there is a halogen light that he does not want you to find. About running every morning at 6:30. Every morning and it's dark right now at 6:30. I carry a little LED flashlight. It has these, you know, these little uh it looks like the blue lights that the new cars have on them. I shine it. Boy, that shines way ahead in the dark. Why do I carry a flashlight in the dark? Because I don't want to stumble upon something that I didn't know was lying in my pathway. You can have the, tes- you can have the halogen light of divine prophecy and shine it. And what, what is coming ahead, you'll see with clarity. Taste them again for the first time. Taste them again. Alright, let me end with the story. The whole series ends with this story. By the way, I can't think of a more heart-inspiring and life-changing Christmas gift to give somebody. Give them the books. Those of you who are bibliophiles like me and you have to, have the whole, you have to hold a book in your hand because you can't figure out how you change the pages with this electronic gizmo. <laughs> Just walk across campus, University Bookstore, you'll find all three classics. Cross the street to the ABC Christian Bookstore. They're all there, hardcover. You can turn the pages, mark them, study them. Come back to Him. Taste them again for the first time. I want to end with this story. The whole series, The Gift, ends now. This is an oral interview between James R. Nix, my friend Jim Nix, and Ella May Robinson, granddaughter of Ellen White. He asked her the question, Hey, what was it like to, to watch a grandma up front? All right? So this is an eyewitness. Granddaughter speaking. She says, I see grandma. I see grandma standing in the pulpit, dressed in her loose-fitting black sack suit, narrow cuffs of white... Narrow white collar secured at the throat by a small brooch. She's been telling of the matchless love of Christ in suffering shame and death and even running the risk of eternal separation from His Father in heaven by taking upon Himself the sins of the world. She pauses. She pauses. And she looks up and with one hand resting on the desk. That's what they called the pulpit back then. And one hand resting upon the desk and the other lifted heavenward, she exclaims in a ringing voice, Oh Jesus, how I love You. How I love you. How I love you. Granddaughter goes on, there is a deep hush. Heaven is very near. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a reason why the gift is called the testimony of Jesus. And here's my testimony about the gift. Like no other author on earth, her writings have taught me To say, oh Jesus, how I love you. How I love you. How I love you. Which is why I'm unabashed, absolutely unapologetic to stand in front of you right now and tell you, I am what I am because of the writings of Ellen White. I am where I am right now because of the writings of Ellen White. I appeal to you. Taste them again for the first time. For your sake. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I want you to sit back now and listen to my friend Glenn Russell, professor of religion here at Andrews University. He wrote a song in college. I want you to hear that song right now. And his college buddy, also my friend Gary Burns, editor of the Lake Union Herald, going to be on the string bass. Listen up.
1: I'm so glad you wrote for Jesus in your way. Though you pleaded with each Christian to prepare for Christ's return, still so many clung to emptiness, sought salvation they could earn. Even now I hear the voices Of opinions raised in spite And we use your words as daggers To cut and prove we're right Would it break your heart in sadness If you touched our apathy Oh, how much we need been confusion, God's sun's kept shining through, through his work and through his spirit, using messengers like you. As a woman, as a vanguard, through a life of growing faith, I'm so glad you live. Jesus in your way. I'm so glad you wrote for Jesus in your way.
0: Let's stand as we pray. Holy Father, thank You for the testimony of Jesus. Where would we be without it? It's all about Him. From Christmas to the end. Oh God, grant us the wisdom to taste them again for the first time. Nourish us, our souls, our bodies, our lives as we count down to the Messiah's second coming. And now may the love of the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you and me while we are absent, one from another. Amen.